HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. It's a cold one today in Brooklyn. Um, happy winter and uh, hopefully no more snowstorms to everyone in New York. Um, so today I'm really excited because we're talking about uh, a different kind of food revolution. I mean, we talk so much about farm-to-table movement when it comes to restaurants, chefs, um, but what about just everyday grocery shopping, the retail stores that we go to? Um, so today I have a guest on who has written a whole history about the natural food uh, retail industry. It's called Natural Profits, from Health Foods to Whole Foods, how the pioneers of the industry changed the way we eat and reshaped American business. It's Joe Dobrow. How are you? I'm doing great, Kathy. Thanks very much for having me on. Thanks so much for, have, uh, for joining us, and uh, congrats on the book. It's your first book, correct? It is. And um, it's pretty cool because you... You had like a you know a fr- front row seat to the whole evolution of this industry, which is you know it has grown from a, like a niche kind of like small uh, fringe movement in the '60s to a you know a building, billion dollar industry with um, that has grown just tremendously in the last couple of decades. Even um, you were working at Whole Foods as a marketing uh, marketing um, manager there for many years. Yeah, I was, I, was, uh, I was the head of marketing for mm-hmm. uh, Whole Foods based out of Austin, and uh, before that, the uh, head of marketing for Fresh Fields, which was one of the East Coast predecessors to Whole Foods. And then in subsequent years, was the head of marketing for Sprouts Farmer's Market, which, uh, although hasn't yet made it to the East Coast, it is already the second largest uh, natural foods retailer in the United States with about $2.5 billion of sales. So, yeah, I, I have had that front row seat and got to meet a lot of the so-called prophets uh, mm-hmm. along the way. And although I hadn't uh, kind of taken notes and uh, thought about putting it all together in a book, uh, certainly the stories lodged in my brain. And when I finally had the chance to be able to sit down and work on this project. It was a real labor of love. 
Excellent. It's a it's a great project. It's a really extensive history, and I love how throughout it, um, you not only chart the the chronology of this uh, industry and its growth, but also you point out the reasons for its being. So you know, health food scares like E. coli and uh, just a natural growing awareness of processed foods, chemical additions, GMOs, and um, so it's also a really great primer in a lot of the reasons why we have natural foods as an alternative. So, well yeah, done. When I, when I look back on it, Kathy, it, it, it really amazes me how much change has happened in our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. Because envision a pendulum that has swung back and forth and back again. So in our grandparents' day, basically everything was natural and organic. We didn't have those labels then. We didn't have labeling laws then. But, you know, if you could somehow now magically peer back into your grandmother's pantry, um, you really wouldn't find anything in there that was made with uh, synthetic additives and and preservatives, and there were no chemicals in the equation because there was no equation. Mm. And then it all changed very dramatically and very quickly right after World War II because so much of the the energy and uh, the industrial capacity that had been built up during the war to try to develop ammunition and weaponry and, and materiel, began to be focused on the agricultural sector after the war. And so in a very short period of time, you had the release of all of these new pesticides and herbicides and fungicides and the new uh, industry developed that was called food science. Mm-hmm. And with that came the release of five, or the development of 5,000 new chemical additives to food. And again... Most of us really didn't know it back then right. because there were no labeling laws. Right. It was a. It wasn't very transparent. So, so one of the reasons I think it, it's um, it's really inspiring reading about the history of of these supermarkets and stores is that it's finally like kind of puts out on you know into the public view the fact that this is different. These foods are different, and here's why. It just it's a startling. Um, uh, kind of call to arms and message if, if you weren't aware and didn't, you know, read up and, and so forth about a lot of these different innovations in food. Yeah, I mean, today, you know, just to sort of fast forward, as the, as the pendulum has swung back a little bit, you can, you can go into the new Whole Foods in Brooklyn, you can go into any of the 370-odd Whole Foods around the world, or into Sprouts, or into, you know, any natural food store and find lots and lots of brands. Um, but you can also find them in almost all the conventional stores and the hybrid stores like Fairway. Mm-hmm. And you could even find them in convenience stores. You know, gas station convenience stores in the middle of Kansas probably have products with the USDA organic seal staring back at you. Uh, and yet, despite all of that, that transformation and all of the efforts of the, the profits of uh, the natural foods world that I chronicle in this book, so that's people like most Siegel, who started Celestial Seasonings, or Gary Hirschberg, who started Stonyfield Farm, or Seth Goldman, who started Honest Tea, or John Mackey from Whole Foods. Despite all of the really incredible efforts of, of those people over the last 25 or 30 years, still, natural and organic foods only make up about 5 to 6% of all of the food sold in supermarkets. Hmm. Now, so there's, there's a lot of upside for this industry still. Right, absolutely. 
Um, there's a lot more story to chart, perhaps in a sequel. Um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> from your words to the publisher's ears, yeah. <laughs> um, no, but this book was also really entertaining because, as you just mentioned um, briefly, some of those natural prophets they have really interesting stories, and you know, talking about the the pioneers of an industry, really the entrepreneurs, they're pretty unconventional people. Um, I mean. There was, uh, you mentioned Mo Siegel, who was uh, the founder of Stonyfield. Um, Celestial, yeah. Sorry, Celestial, who was picking herbs in, you know, from mountains and basically carved out an herbal tea industry when there wasn't. There was like, you know, black tea, Lipton, and then, you know, exactly. coffee. Um, and then there is Gary Hirschberg of Stonyfield Farm, who was milking cows and then driving the vans for delivery, <laughs> you know, himself. And it's... It's unusual, and you know, unlike other new industries, because this is, you know, it did become an industry. Um, it, it's not. It's kind of like looking to the past rather than new innovations like tech. Um, I, I just thought that was really fascinating. Yeah, and and yet it's really accessible to all of us because these people have lived during the same era that we've lived, and they've experienced the same things that we have. So. It's not like going back and writing a history of the railroad industry, and here's Leland Stanford, who you know is a, a nice photograph, but we really can't relate to him in this day and age. Mm-hmm. These, these guys, I mean, you mentioned Gary uh, driving the van. You know, one of the stories that I tell in the book is that in the early days of Stonyfield Farm, they would just load up their van with yogurt and basically drive as fast as they could be able to deliver it because, as he said, who could afford refrigeration? All right. Um, you know, what a, what a funny but very practical and relatable... Bootstrapping, yes, definitely relatable. Um, you know, in this day and age, we see a lot of different food artisans um, starting up, so it's a very inspiring story of success. Um, I want to get to that a little bit more in just a moment, but, um, you know, going back to some of these entrepreneurs, um, do you think, you know, from your position... Uh, getting to know them and, you know, working with them, did they have any idea what was, you know, what that, that they were going to launch, you know, a multi-million dollar company eventually from their efforts? I mean, it sounds like, you know, John Mackey, for instance, um, the first Whole Foods and he and his partner, uh, there was some debacle and, you know, they ended up having to store food in their apartments and then they ended up living in the f- in the store because they got evicted or something like that. I mean, it just sounds madcap a little. <laughs> yeah, well, madcap's a good word for it. Uh, no, certainly in in the early years, I mean, these early pioneers who, who uh, developed these companies in the 1970s and even into the 1980s, uh, their motivation was not to get rich, and it wasn't to build a big company or right. even a big industry. It was, it was a, an outgrowth of the fact that they were children of the 60s. And so their goal was, was humble, and it was simple. Save the world. That's really all they wanted to do. Uh, so you know, they set about to kind of reject the way that most businesses were operating in those days. Okay. The, structured their businesses differently. They certainly paid much more attention to sourcing of the ingredients and the impact on both the people who are working for the company and, and the customers. It's what we've now come to call the triple bottom line philosophy, mm. where the old bottom line of pure profits has been 
augmented and balanced out by a focus on on the planet and on people. But that's what these these early pioneers in the industry were all about. So, oh, for example, one of the people that uh, I talk about a lot in the book is Steve Demos. So Steve was the founder of White Wave and of Silk. Mm-hmm. And when he started out, it was really because he was pursuing this uh, lifestyle with a philosophy of what is called right livelihood, mm. uh, which is essentially that businesses can follow the golden rule, too. Okay. And, and by, by working that way and living that way, we're, we're all better off. Uh, so he went years and years of creating artisanal tofu and tofu products. Soy milk. Were, were yeah. real dogs. I mean, he had a hard time selling this stuff. Oh. Uh, and I don't think, maybe he had the vision that, uh, that, that someday tofu would catch on, but I think he doubted himself a lot, too. And then, all of a sudden, he was inspired with the idea to create silk, okay. a drinkable soy product that could be packaged in, in the traditional gable packages of, of dairy milk and merchandise right alongside it in stores. And I think there's a quote in my book from Steve where uh, he, he says something like, you know, I, I knew as soon as that idea came on that that was the rocket ship that was going mm. to blast off and take us forward. So it really, that, that's very typical. It took a lot of effort for these guys to be able to build the market, develop the, the packaging and the marketing plans and the corporate structure to be able to do anything more than just kind of serve the, the fringe element that had been shopping in, in the health food stores in the 60s and 70s. Huh. But once they did, it was magical. It was that light bulb moment. That's really cool. Um, so, you know, I, I know a lot of folks around um, the city even who have small food businesses and artisanal niche products um, made with basically a conscience and um there's like a lot of pressure nowadays and um just you know uncertainty about you know the phrase go big or go out so you know beef up and do some more mass mass scale production or would that you know hurt the sort of brand of the small and like local and small badge made um identity um, so I, I don't know how much you know this pertains to the grocery business, but um, I understand that you know as as time went on, um, a lot of these companies started to gain their footing, and you know in, in the case of Whole Foods, they ended up um, acquiring other store chains, like-minded chains throughout the country, like Freshfields, which I happen to remember from New Jersey when it first opened, okay. um, where I grew up, and I always wondered what happened to, and it just changed its name one day to Whole Foods. I was like, oh, they just changed their name. I don't know, but. Um, yeah, that was uh, a yeah. that was cool to read about because I always wondered well, about that. <laughs> sure, um, I, let me offer you a, a couple of perspectives on it. Uh, so, you know, I grew up on Long Island, and but I've but I've been away from New York other than, than visits for a long time. And this past week, when I was back in the city to launch the book, uh, it was really interesting just traveling around the city and first off seeing how many little stores and little restaurants are catering to the vegan population. That is a word that you wouldn't have even seen on a menu 10 years ago. Now you're seeing it on storefronts on nearly every block. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that said to me that 
in New York, if nowhere else, this artisanal movement and these specialty diets and all of that is thriving. I mean, it's alive and well, and I think that that's very encouraging. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the efforts of a lot of these small entrepreneurs, um, I think, are paying off whether or not they decide that they're going to get big at some point. So as evidence of that, later this week, out in Anaheim, the natural foods industry will meet for its, its uh, twice-a-year uh, uh, trade show. And this is the big one. This is oh. called Expo West. Right. 70,000 people will attend this show. And in one of the halls at the convention center, it's, it's in the basement, and the show organizer used, used to refer to it as the hash den, because <laughs> this is where a lot of the real, small, new, cutting-edge manufacturing companies go to be seen for the first time. Mm. And those guys will, at some point during the weekend, wander up to the main show floor, and they'll see companies like Stonyfield or Zevia or Pacific Natural Foods, on and on, who at one point in time were all as small as they were, but have now become, you know, each in its own right, a, a colossus. They've all gotten big. Uh, and I think some of these, these entrepreneurs from the quote-unquote hash den uh, <laughs> will aspire to do that. Yeah. And I think some of them won't. Some of them right. will just say, you know, we've got our niche. We're really happy to be serving a, a geographic lo- locale mm-hmm. or to be making the two or three products that we really enjoy making and that are serving mm-hmm. an audience. And, you know, the, the industry now at $100 billion is sufficiently mature and large enough to be able to accommodate all of those different factions. Hmm. Very exciting times, I, I guess. It's a, it's a constantly expanding and evolving industry. And I, I have... I'm really hard-pressed to think of any other industry out there that is as vibrant, <laughs> that has created as much wealth, but that has hung on to its values in the way that this one has. And as testament to that, I would, I would offer you this little anecdote, and that is that in the first, uh, oh, I don't know, 17 years for me out of business school, I almost never got contacted by students or alumni uh, interest in going into the natural foods industry, even though I was the head of marketing for Whole Foods and for these other companies. Uh, in the last uh, five years or so, it's been an explosion. And the, the phone calls just don't stop coming. There are tons and tons of uh, people who are going and getting MBAs who are saying, I, I don't want to go into investment banking. I don't want to go into consulting. I want to go into something that is going to do some good in the world. Yeah, and so that is a very encouraging sign. And of course, you know, there's there's legions more uh, who don't go the MBA route, who just have a great feel for food, and who love natural and organic in- uh, foods and, and what the industry stands for. Uh, and yeah, they are it, they are creating very exciting times for us right now. Yeah, keep it maybe mom and pop size, or or see what else is out there. I think that you know either way, this is very. Um this is a very exciting book for anyone right now who's breaking their back, uh, lifting pallets of their product <laughs> and shipping it or racing in a van with it to with that refrigeration to wherever they need to go. Um, we're going to take a quick little commercial break. We'll be right back in about a minute.
Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. All right, that was a very appropriate sponsor message <laughs> for our station. Um, you know, Heritage Radio is very happy to have Whole Foods Market as a sponsor. I'm not even required to say that. It's just kind of funny. Um, <laughs> we've got Joe Dobrow, who uh, was a former marketing uh, director of marketing at Whole Foods and other natural um, food groceries throughout the country. And he's also, bleh, also the author of Natural Profits, The History of All That. Um, so, you know, kind of, you, you sort of brought this up a little bit, but, um, actually you did, um, you mentioned how this industry is only about 5% of retail groceries so far. I mean, it's, it's, you know, for all its visibility and, um, and all the change and awareness that has made with, um, with food, um, that we spoke about, it's just, it's kind of. It's kind of disappointing because, um, you know, we see a lot of food deserts like right now, you know, where, you know, my m- nearby neighborhoods in Brooklyn um, that don't have access to fresh food within reasonable walking distance. Um, how do you think it, it, it? Do you see any way that this industry can help out with these issues about, you know, less privileged communities, food deserts? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's interestingly one that's been coming up a lot as Mm -hmm. I've been going around on on the tour for Natural Profits. Uh, I think so, and for this reason, that the the people who are getting into this industry definitely have their heart in the right place. Mm -hmm. And these are people who are aware of these food deserts and the food inequality problem and the the whole paycheck reputation, probably not fully deserved. but Term of endearment, uh, if you will. What's that? It, it's a lovable term of endearment for the it team. Is, yeah. It is. It's, it's uh, kind of a battle scar at this point. Yeah. Um, but uh, they, these people are keenly aware of that, and so I think that many of them are going into the industry for that very reason, because they really do want to be able to find ways to uh, extend the important work that's been done in organics and in gluten-free and uh, nutritional development mm-hmm. uh, to a, a wider audience. Uh, I'll give you a, an interesting example. So one of the people that I chronicle in the book is Gene Kahn, who was the founder of Cascadian Farm. Oh, right. They make lots of the you know, frozen uh, vegetables and, and uh, entrees and things like that. I think I remember him from uh, Omnivore's Dilemma. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, very good. Yeah, he was uh, he was prominently featured by Michael Pollan uh, because Gene was really an iconoclast. Uh, mm-hmm. He was somebody who lived through the worst of the '60s. He was there at the Democratic convention in Grant Park in Chicago in 1968. Uh, he dropped out of graduate school because he thought there's got to be a, a better way, and 
he ran Cascadian Farm for decades. He sold it three different times, uh, ultimately to General Mills. And there are people out there who might look at this and say, well, Gene Kahn sold out and Cascadian Farm sold out. Uh, but Gene tells a very interesting story in the book in that when he was running Cascadian Farm, he would do his earnest best to try to make sure that when he was farming that the, the farm machinery was cleaned after they were harvesting organic crops uh, and versus conventional crops to make sure that there was separation there. When he sold the company to General Mills and then went to work for General Mills, he said they would literally take a combine apart piece by piece. A, com- sure a combine? Yeah. Sorry, what's that? Yeah, I mean the the, the farm equipment. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Make make absolutely certain that there was no trace of any conventional grain left in there when they then went out uh, to to harvest the organic crops. Hmm. And so now today, Gene uh, is working on uh, an effort to create biodynamic crops, which is a way of fortifying crops so that they will have higher nutrition content, which is extremely important in sub-Saharan Africa, but not too much of a stretch of the imagination to think that that sort of biofortification effort will Mm. also become important in this country. Yeah, Uh, absolutely. If if we're going to be able to uh, improve the nutrition for for all people, uh, part of it's going to happen through accessibility, part of it's going to happen through the price coming down, and part of it's going to happen through making sure that the the, uh, foodstuffs and the crops that we're making available to them are as nutritionally sound as possible. And don't confuse that, by the way, with genetic engineering, because they're two separate things. Right. Well, that's exciting, um, exciting new developments then. Um, You know, and I would would think that there is hopefully an opportunity for... um, you know, these types of stores to grow into lesser privileged communities or food deserts? Because, I mean, I'm not an economist, but I I think that, you know, it sounds like, or it looks like, in a lot of these communities, there just is no competition. There is no fresh food, whether it's organic or not. It's just a, it's just a, it's an opportunity, hopefully, waiting to happen, especially with with more folks aware and and concerned and who care about uh, fresh, healthy food. So anyone, anyone yeah, who, I, who's uh, there, working... There's a story in, uh, in the out. book uh-huh. about Drew and Myra Goodman, who were the founders of Earthbound Farm. Now, Earthbound Farm has become one of the most important, most ubiquitous organic brands out there. But Myra grew up in Brooklyn. Drew grew up on the Upper East Side. And she describes her household when she was growing up that her parents, who were immigrants from... Uh, Hungary, I believe, um, didn't really appreciate the importance of fresh food and of nutrition, and so she ate like a typical New Yorker did back then. And she would you know, grab a slice of pizza on the way to school and, and a bagel, and uh, she said that the only time that she really ever got any fresh food was when she would go buy frozen yogurt in the, the uh, cellar at Macy's because they sprinkled a little you know, some strawberries and blueberries on there. Uh, well, that's no longer the case in Manhattan, but it sure is the case in some other places. So, yeah, I think the, the economic argument is a very important one here uh, because as these companies do become profitable, as they become bigger, uh, knowing that they still have their hearts in the right place, uh, that 
mass, those economies of scale are helping to bring their production costs down, which in turn bring yeah. retail costs down. Absolutely. I mean, this could be a really, really dumb idea right now, but if anyone works at one of these places, um, what about, you know, kind of a lower cost sister version, you know, the the light kind of bargain <laughs> basement version of one of these stores? Hey, you never know. It could it could spin and, off. And you know, Cassie, that really is kind of the concept behind Sprouts Farmers Market. Okay. Cool. Which is based out here in Phoenix. Uh, they've got, oh, I guess, about 170 stores now, and they're getting ready to, to come east. Hmm. Uh, the whole idea there was let's offer a stepping stone to better eating so it doesn't have to be all natural Glitzy, or all yeah. organic. Yeah. But if we can bring the costs down, and, and particularly on produce, uh, we can attract a, a whole different segment. And they've done that. So it's an incredibly fast-growing company right now, publicly traded company as of last August. Uh, and there's no question that they have helped to bring the cost of, of healthy eating down. Very cool. Good to know. Um, so we only have like a minute or so left, but um, we talked a little bit about the reasons for um, the growth of this industry in the 90s um, and leading up. But what, you know, if, if they are different, uh, what in your opinion do you think are the biggest reasons to to shop for healthy foods today you know it's the the influence of this industry on other industries right now is is apparent because people who are progressive thinkers uh, tend to want to buy goods that are transparently produced that are ethically produced and that's one of the major legacies that the natural and organic foods industry has had Mm-hmm. It has transformed not just what we eat and where we shop and how we think and talk about food, but it's starting to have an influence on the clothing industry and the manufacturing industry. And you can even look and see companies like you know, Ford Motor Company right now and Levi Strauss uh, that are doing things the right way. Uh, they may have had those uh, instincts long ago, but when they've looked over and seen the incredible success of the natural organic foods industry, mm. which I, I talk about a lot in Natural Profits, the, the path has become clear. And that, to me, is kind of the, the greatest motivation uh, for people who, uh, who are interested in, in these kinds of foods. Of course, they happen to taste really good, too. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> they're hopefully safer. <laughs> safer they hopefully way. are. Yeah. They hopefully are. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts today on this program and also on this book. So everyone check out Natural Profits, just out from Rodale. And um, thanks again uh, for thank joining you, us. And, uh, and if people are interested in more, you can go to naturalprofits.com. It's, it's uh, natural, P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S.com. You can find the book there, but you can find it in all bookstores and Amazon and everywhere else. So thank you so much. I really Excellent. appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.